Father, we thank you, Lord, today. We thank you, Lord, that even now, God, as we turn to your word, God, as we begin to focus our mind on what you would say to us today through your word, Father, we, we acknowledge, Lord, that there is war. There is war in this room. There is war in the hearts of men and women and teenagers and children, Lord. And Father, we recognize that the enemy who comes and seeks to steal, kill, and destroy would, would try to discourage this morning, would try to plant fear in hearts this morning. God would try to convince those of us who are here, Lord, that, that maybe you're not real. Maybe you don't love us. Maybe your way is not right and perfect. Father, there's decisions that need to be made here today. And so, Father, I know that there is war over those decisions. And we pray, God that You will overwhelm us with Your presence, that You will show us today through Your Word that, God, You and You alone are the God of the universe. And You sent Your Son to redeem men and women, to forgive our sin, to usher us into a right relationship with You because You sought it right, Lord. You, you knew... You knew, Lord, that we would perish apart from You. And so You revealed Yourself to us. You came to us. We didn't go to You. You came to us, Lord. You have spoken to us, God. You have loved us every moment of our lives, whether we acknowledge it or not. And so, Father, now we want to worship You and You alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. Amen. You can get your copy of Scripture and open to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 9. As we continue our journey through Luke, you'll find the passage for today on page 1193 in the Pew Bible in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab that Bible in front of you and just open to 1193 and you'll find out where we are. Now, for those of you that might be just new to this journey through Luke, just in the last several weeks, you uh, uh, might take note that we're certainly not skipping over a passage of Scripture in the book of Luke, but uh, it was dealt with. We had a, a guest preacher, Daniel Riddick, who was here about a month ago, and he dealt with the previous passage in Luke, and so I'm not going to go through that again, and we're going to look today at the transfiguration a very uh, high point, an unbelievably special moment in in Scripture and in the lives of uh, the believers uh, today and those who were there at the moment. And so I want you to, to take note that uh, as I studied this passage this week, I recalled a, a conversation that I had in seminary where uh, there was a group of us sitting around the table and uh, you know how... It normally goes at seminary we're all sitting around the table and we're discussing theology and you know uh, challenging each other on different things and anyway this discussion arose and the question was what was the most important 
thing that Jesus did or what was the most uh, spectacular achievement or moment in time between the birth of Christ and the death of Christ. And so we were going around the room talking about different things and I was thinking to myself, you know, I'm not sure I've ever actually thought of that. And so all these different moments in Scripture are going through my mind. And I came to the transfiguration, the Scripture we'll look at today. And I just paused for a moment. I thought, you know... That's the moment. That is the most important moment between the birth of Christ and the death of Christ. Certainly there's no moment more important, more revealing, more uh, instructive to you and me because there's this tendency in us to sort of clamor for an experience with God. We want to experience God. We want an encounter with God. We want to meet with God. In fact, today, all over the world, in, in uh, hundreds of thousands of different contexts, there are people who are gathering into uh, various facilities or grouping together, and they're coming because they want to have an experience with God. And there's many places that, are, that will promise you if you'll come to their place, you'll have an experience with God. And, and there's all sorts of emotionalism, and there's all sorts of crazy things going on. There are people who are doing things that um, just uh, this week, my son was uh, watching some... Uh, now, how am I going to say this? My son was was on YouTube and he was watching videos of a false prophet. And uh, now, I know some of you are like, why is your son watching videos of a false prophet? That's how we entertain ourselves at the Carnes house. <laughs> and so, it's a great teaching moment. And uh, anyway, so he, you know, he obviously he knows... Uh, right from wrong and he he understands and so we, we were watching and the the crazy things that are going on out there and people are spinning and getting dizzy and barking and laughing and doing all these crazy things and experiencing god is is sort of the is the the context that these things are supposed to be occurring in and they're just crazy they're just ridiculous it's just insanity and uh, the, the night ended for me when the, the prophet had an experience with God and his tears turned to gold as they ran down his face, supposedly. To which he said, we have video of this, but it's not on the internet for you to see. But he has video of it. He just wanted to tell me on video that he has video of it. Then he began to tell me, uh, why he did that because he is now the Ark of the Covenant and wherever the Ark of the Covenant went there was gold dust that trailed behind it and so now since he's the Ark of the Covenant his tears are turning to gold there's wackos out there folks you got to be careful and uh, you can uh, you can uh, learn some things but listen what is an experience from God I want to experience God I have experienced God many of you have experienced God but there's some confusion about what that is and so before we even look at this text of scripture I want you to understand some things about what an authentic encounter with God is now you can go home today and you can read the passage that precedes this and then you can read the passage that comes after this and you can take this in context and what you'll begin to see and I'll dive into this next week as we go forward but you'll begin to see that an encounter with God is an uncommon experience okay there's not an encounter with God that's occurring every time a church meets in this way 
This is a supernatural encounter with God where God gives us an, an uncommon experience. It's a momentary encounter. It's not, it doesn't last for, for months and months and months. It comes and then it goes. But after we encounter God in a supernatural way, there's some things that happen to us. It results in a fresh reality of the majesty and the nearness of God. And when you have an encounter with God, here's what you will find out. An authentic encounter with God is going to affect you mentally. It's going to affect and engage your mind. You're going to be engaged with God in a, in a conscious way in your mind. It's going to affect your emotions. You cannot come into the presence of God, meet with God in a special way, and not be emotionally drawn. And it's also going to result in a, in a change in your actions. You're going to see God in a new way. God doesn't just reveal Himself to us for no reason. He reveals Himself to us for a purpose. And you'll see as we t- go through this Scripture today that there is a result of an authentic encounter with God. So what I want you to see is that you can look at your own life. And as we go through this passage, and you'll begin to be able to, to, to answer for yourself, have you ever had an encounter with God? Because there are certain characteristics of encountering God. It, it will leave you changed. And it will leave you changed in very uh, tangible, specific ways. We cannot just make up things that happen to us when we encounter God because that is utterly unbiblical and anything that's unbiblical is uh, not defensible and just really ridiculous. Okay? So let's begin reading Luke chapter 9. Let's look beginning in verse 27. Here's what the Word of God says. But I tell you truly, Jesus speaking, that there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. Now it came to pass about eight days after these things that he took Peter, John, and James and went up on a mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered and his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and those who were there were in heavy sleep. And when they were fully awake, they saw His glory and the two men who stood with Him. Then it happened, as they were parting from Him, that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here? And let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what He said. But while He was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were fearful as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, hear Him. When the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone. But they kept quiet and told no one in those days any of the things that they had seen. Now, let's just begin looking at verse 27. It's an important passage. It brings a lot of confusion to some people. Verse 27 This passage begins with the Bible saying, I tell you truly, Jesus says, that there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. Now notice that the next verse transitions forward chronologically in time. Luke tells us eight days. Now when Matthew and Mark recount this, they say six days. 
So there must be uh, something wrong in the Bible. There must not be uh, uh, just a perfect, inerrant copy of Scripture. There must be some confusion because now we have gospel writers giving us different accounts. And in fact, that is not the case. They're just different. And I'll explain that to you in a moment. But what I want you to see is that in verse 27, Jesus says there are some standing here. Now the question is, who's Jesus talking to? Well, he's talking to his disciples. And he says there are some standing here that will not taste death until they see the kingdom of heaven. Now, he's talking to his disciples, which number 12. And he says there are some standing here. Now, within the some that are standing there, there are three. Peter, James, and John. And then the other disciples do not see what they see on the mountain. Are you with me? And so Jesus is merely alluding to the fact that there are some of you that are going to see something eight days from now that the others of you are not going to see. Now, there are some, you know, there are some reasonable connotations here that, of course, also uh, Jesus could be talking about the culmination of his ministry on the death of the cross and his resurrection and, and the ushering into the kingdom of God at Pentecost and all these other things. But the word some gives us a clue as to what's going on here. So I don't want you to get confused about what's going on. It's merely a preview of what's about to happen. So let's look at the first point I want you to see, and that is an encounter with God is to encounter His glory. There's no encounters with God apart from His glory. Verse 28, Now it came to pass eight days after these sayings that He took Peter, James, and John and went up to the mountain to pray. Now, what's this issue of the days? Well, both Mark and Matthew say six days. Mark and Matthew count the days of travel between verse 27 and 28. They had to travel six days to get to Mount Tabor. So when they're getting there, six days pass. So they say it's six days. That's how many days. The reason Luke says eight days is, first of all, he says it was about eight days. And Luke counts the day that Jesus spoke in verse 27 and the day the transfiguration occurred. And so Luke is just merely counting all the days, including the day he said it and the day it happened. So don't panic. It's okay. Just have to think about it a little bit and be careful and read the Bible carefully and you'll find explanation. So Luke is just merely using a little bit of different uh, chronology in his counting. But what's important here is that there are some ingredients that we see to these encounters with God in verse 28. So the first thing I want you to see is where are they? Where does this take place, this encounter with God? I mean... Why do, they, why do they travel six days? Why go to a mountain? Certainly, everything that occurred could have happened right where they were. They didn't have to go anywhere. But they go to a mountain. Why? I want you to understand, first of all, that God typically shows up. That our encounters with God happen in places where we are separated from the things that normally distract us. That when we encounter God, it's not in the hustle and bustle and everyday, you know, fluff that we face. See, God calls Moses to the mountain and he meets with him. He didn't have to do that. But God is, is illustrating to us that there needs to be a component of our life where we get alone away with God. 
God brings them alone. When Jesus oftentimes gets up early in the morning and goes off to pray, notice He goes off by Himself. Now, because we, we just think a lot of times when we read Scripture that Jesus is just the same as we are. And so we read it like He's us. And so we don't really think a lot about well, why does Jesus get up and go off into a garden to pray or go off by himself or go up in a mountain to pray? Well, he's God. So if God can't pray without getting distracted, what hope do I have? You ever thought about that? He's, he's teaching us that the best way to get alone with the Father is to get alone with the Father. And that means to not be distracted. And so... You know, a lot of times in church, what happens is uh, some of you are very easily distracted. And, you, and if somebody's scratching their head or twirling their hair or whatever's going on, or you're, you know, looking down at your phone or something's going on, it's bugging you, some kid's tapping on the back of your seat, and so you're having a hard time, then in that moment, here's what you need to do. You need to move. Or you need to, to turn around and say, you know, hey, excuse me, or do whatever you need to do. But the problem is, is that if you're easily distracted, then just do the unthinkable. Sit up front. See other people up here clapping? There's plenty of room. It's okay. You won't die. So they go up a mountain. The second thing, what are they doing? Well, they go up the mountain to pray. And again, this is important. Encounters with God come through spiritual disciplines. They come through uh, powerful moments in our life when we are doing that which God has called us to do. And so don't just miss the obvious that they're, they go up on a mountain and they go up for the express purpose to pray. Okay, verse 29. And as Jesus prayed, the appearance of his face was altered and his robe became white and glistening. This is an amazing passage of Scripture because each of the gospel writers, Mark and Matthew and Luke, all give us different descriptions of what this looked like. Mark is, in Mark chapter 9, is hilarious because Mark says that he became white, so bleached white, whiter than any launderer could make white. What? How, what does that mean? I started thinking about, you know, I'm like, that means it's whiter than a, my mother-in-law could make a white shirt? Because that's pretty white. That's what I started thinking about. Her doing laundry and making things white and, and her and my wife sitting around going, now this stain here, we've tried 17 things on this. Let's do this and let's try this and all these things to get. And Mark says, it's just whiter than a launderer could make white. Whiter than bleach white. But Luke... And Matthew used this, this glistening term and they, and, and this, it altered or he transfigured his face. The Greek term is the term we get metamorphosis from to transform that Jesus began to transform from one thing to another. Now, this is a very interesting word because transfigured, this transformation, this word is only used four times in the New Testament. Twice with regards to the transfiguration, but one of the other times is in the book of Romans chapter 12 where the Bible says, do not be conformed to the things of this world, but be transformed. Now, that's interesting because this same transforming power is applied to you and me 
through the Word of God. Now don't miss the significance of that. That the transfiguration, the word the disciples used to describe Jesus transforming is the same word Paul uses that will occur in us as we ingest and medicate, meditate, not medicate, meditate, as we meditate and follow God's Word. That is amazing to me. When I saw that, I was just astonished. And Luke uses this word white and glistening. This glistening word is the word that is used to describe lightning. So you just have to try to imagine what's going on. Jesus begins to transform from God in the flesh to the God of glory right there on the mountain. Now, this is not a reflection of glory like Moses coming down the mountain glowing from being in the presence of God. This is not the reflection of glory. This glory is is coming from within. This is an inner glory. This is the source of glory right here on the mountain. You see, Jesus doesn't just get us near the glory. He is the glory. He is the glory. And so the Bible says in Revelation chapter 1 that his eyes are like a flame of fire. His countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. See, John knows this because John has seen this. And in heaven, the Bible tells us that there will be no no need for the sun or the moon because heaven will be illuminated by the glory of God. But Isaiah tells us that in that moment, the moon will be disgraced and the sun will be ashamed. That see, His glory is so great that the Son is ashamed. Just imagine that for a moment. The Son, with all of its power and all of its light, and and the the fact that it can light up our world and bring us warmth and burn us if we're not careful, and yet it will be ashamed in the presence and the light of the glory of God. That's the glory. That's the light that is being revealed here. And so I want you to understand that you cannot encounter God and not encounter His glory. Because He is glory. That's who He is. And so, when you and me encounter God in a special way, His glory should overwhelm us. Because if it didn't, we didn't encounter God. We encountered something else. The second thing I want you to see is to encounter God is to encounter His purpose. You see, God God brings His purpose and His passion into everything that He does. Notice in verse 30, And behold... Two men were talking with him who were Moses and Elijah who appeared in in glory and spoke of his decease which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, why Moses and Elijah? I mean, why these two? You know, I've heard people um, try to use this text to, to try to propagate reincarnation. They would say, well, wait a minute. You remember Moses and Elijah? They were up on the mountain, so I mean, reincarnation can happen. Well, first of all, the first problem with that is, is that Elijah can't be reincarnated because he never died, right? He went up in a flaming chariot into heaven. So he took a, 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 a fire-filled taxi to heaven so he could not be reincarnated. The second problem with that is that Moses, though he died in a special way and God buried him, he still died. He cannot be reincarnated. Why? Because he's still Moses. Now, if it was Elijah and a gerbil, maybe you could make that case. But it's Moses. You see, 
It's not hard if you just look. People will try to twist things into anything. But, but, but why these two? Really, why these two? If you and me even just, just begun to understand the priority of Scripture in the Hebrew culture, the way that these individuals looked at the Word of God in such, it was such a profound part of their lives. They memorized it. They, they read it continuously. They knew it by heart. And if you, if you and I understood that, we would know that there were two categories of Scripture, the law and the prophets. And the law was represented by Moses. And the prophets was represented by Elijah. And so these two great men represent to the people the Bible, the, the God of Word, the, the Word of God. That's what they had. And so it makes sense that these would be the two. But God could have chosen anyone He wanted to, but He was trying to send a message. And I believe the message was, you've got the law here and you've got the prophets. But what are they talking about? What is this conversation they're having? You see, I told you it's always God's purpose and His passion that comes into an encounter with Him. In the second part of verse 31, And they spoke of His decease, which He was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. That word decease, that is the same word that's translated exodus. In other words, the same word that indicated the exodus is now being applied to Christ as He's going to exit out of the realm of this world, but in the process, He's going to free us from captivity. That there's going to be a departure of God from the earth. Now, here's my question. What else would they be talking about? Just think about it for a moment. Here's Moses and Elijah. This isn't the first time they've been in the presence of God, now is it? Now, I don't mean when they were on earth. I mean, where have they been all the time between leaving earth and this moment? They've been in heaven. And so they've been in the presence of Jesus Christ. And so this isn't a new, this isn't a first time meeting. They know each other. And so they are now, have come down to earth and are visiting with the missionary God Jesus who has been sent from heaven down to earth to redeem mankind Now, if you understand that, here's the question. What else would they be talking about? There's only one thing on their mind. And that is, what's the purpose for which Jesus is here? The most miraculous conversation in heaven is going on over and over and over. And it's, can you believe what Jesus did? Can you believe God's plan? Can you believe the love that He has for His creation? Listen, and so they have been waiting... And they get an opportunity to come down and talk with Him. And of course they're talking about that. They're talking about what they're passionate about. Jesus is talking about what His purpose is. Which really convicts my heart and ought to convict your heart. Because here's the question. What are we always talking about? Because you know what? The thing that we talk about the most, no matter what we say, really indicates... What's most important to us? And so, Lord, forgive us for meaningless, endless, droning on conversations about football and politics and this and that and the other. Our conversation ought to be about 
Jesus Christ came to earth to redeem mankind. And we are part of that plan and that purpose. And that's what we should be consuming ourselves with. And so they're having a conversation about what is about to take place. But you see, the disciples don't know this because the Bible says in verse 32 that then they, that Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep. Now I know I could pick fun here and we could have a laugh. But let's just think for a moment, okay? Let's be realistic about this. Here, here these disciples are. They've, they've followed Jesus. They traveled a long way and he brings them up on a mountain. And what does he tell them they're going up on the mountain to do? To pray. And now they're asleep. Now, this isn't something that we're going to see for the first time because you all know the story of Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane and what happens? They go to sleep, right? And so we could just say, who would go to sleep on a mountain with, you know, someone glistening like lightning and two prophets from, you know, time gone by appearing and all this going on? How could you be asleep? But here's what we don't know. How long was Jesus in prayer before this picks up? You see, it would be real easy for us to just jump right on and think, you know, really? There's Jesus, you know, praying with grief, sweating drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, and you're sleeping? Really? It would be easy for us to do that. But what if Jesus was praying for five hours? You see, because here's what we do again. We think Jesus prays like we pray. We think Jesus just says, now I lay me down to sleep prayers. Who could fall asleep in five seconds? When was the last time you spent hours alone with no cell phone, no distractions, you and the Lord alone in prayer. One hour? Two hours? What about three hours? Have you ever been praying and been in such a, a place with God that as you pray, you just completely lose track of time? Like you don't even... There are times in my life when I have, I have, have, have sort of come back from a prayer time and had to regain my bearings as to where what I was doing and where I am and what's going on because I was so disconnected from my environment and so focused on what I was praying about. You see, this is the Son of God. He doesn't pray silly little trite prayers. And so maybe after five hours of seeking the Father and, and, and fellowshipping with this Heavenly Father. The disciples, they finally just went to sleep. I don't know. But I suspect that before we pick on them, we should look in the mirror and examine our own prayer lives. Uh, the second part of verse 32 says, And when they were fully awake, which simply indicates that they were really asleep, like snoring asleep, when they were fully awake, they saw His glory and the two men who stood with Him. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm just trying to somehow get into my brain what it would be like to be completely asleep, dead asleep, and to wake up to this. 
And so here they are waking up going, "Uh uh-oh, what's going on? And verse 33 says, and then it happened as they were parting from him. So apparently as they woke up, it was sort of the end of this conversation. It was sort of the end of this moment. So they're beginning to part from him. And Peter said to Jesus, Master, is it good for us to be here? Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And of course, Luke is kind in saying not knowing what he said. You could probably put that after most things that Peter says, at least prior to Pentecost. And so Peter wakes up, sees what's going on, and as he usually does, he just speaks without thinking and says, wait a minute, I got an idea. Why don't I build some tabernacles? Well, let's think about this. I looked at this and prayed about this and thought about this and tried to imagine this and read every commentary under the sun about this, and and there were some things that I uh, came up with. Okay, first of all, It's interesting to me that Peter didn't say, let me make six tabernacles. You know, one for each of you and one for each of us. So he understood there was definitely something different going on with these three than with us three. And so I think that he had a heart to serve, that he wasn't trying to be arrogant or he wasn't trying to, you know, be disrespectful in any way. He just simply wanted to serve him, wasn't really sure what to do. Now, it is true that this time fits with the Feast of the Tabernacles, which would have been the time when the Jewish people would build booths, these little shack tabernacles and they would sleep in those where they could look up at the night sky and they would be reminded as they were sort of camping of you know of the time that they were led out of captivity by Moses and so it is interesting to me that he chooses the word tabernacles but it appears that he speaks because they're parting in other words He's not sure what's going on. He was asleep. He woke up and now there's some crazy things going on. But he doesn't want it to end. He wants it to continue. He wants them to stay. And so he says, well, wait a minute. Don't leave. Why don't I just build some tabernacles and everyone can stay? You can stay. Don't leave. This is phenomenal. But then there's also the idea that Peter was under the assumption that they were going to stay. You see, because we know that the disciples were resistant to the idea that Jesus was going to go away. And they wanted Him to come and usher in this new kingdom that He would be the earthly king and that He would fix all their problems. And so now they've woken up and said, Bingo! Our problems are over. We've got lightning man here on the mountain and Moses and Elijah. And so when we go down from here, when everyone sees what's going on up here, we're not going to have any more problems at all. I mean, we've got it covered now. So let's just build some tabernacles and I'll stay. Maybe. But I do know this. It was a dumb thing to say. That I know. Because the Bible says that while he was saying this, In other words, he's in the midst of this idea that maybe we shouldn't leave from here. Maybe we should stay here. And a cloud came and overshadowed them. And I can just imagine James and John. As soon as Peter speaks, they're thinking, oh, no, this isn't going to be good. And then here comes a cloud and it engulfs them. And they're probably they're probably saying, "Okay, we're going to die now because you want to build a tabernacle. Way to go. And the cloud comes 
And the, the voice of God corrects Peter and, and says, no, you've got it wrong. We're not building any, any, any tabernacles. We're not, we're not staying here. That again, this is about something greater. And so we see that there's an, if there's an encounter with God, there must be an encounter with His glory. There must be an encounter with His purpose and His passion. And thirdly, there must be an encounter with our, our fear of Him, our reverence of Him in His awesomeness. See that if we encounter God in an authentic way, we must be overwhelmed with fear and awe at who He is And so this cloud begins to, to descend. And the Bible says that they were fearful as they entered the cloud. Now, why are they fearful? Well, isn't that obvious? They're fearful because they're already in a very uh, unbelievable situation. Everything's already totally out of control. Anything's possible. Now a cloud has descended. And they probably know... That the Old Testament taught when the cloud descended on the mountain, what was the rule? If you touched the mountain while the cloud was descended on the top of the mountain, you would die. Well, they're on the mountain. They're not touching the mountain. They're up there. And the cloud comes down. Now, the cloud doesn't envelop them. It envelops Jesus, Elijah, and Moses because the Bible says that the the voice came out of the cloud. So they weren't in the cloud, but believe me, nonetheless, this was a, an unbelievable, uh, moment in time and they're overwhelmed with fear. Now, this brings up a good, a, a good thought for us to ponder for a moment. The fear of God in, and how is it that so many will so flippantly claim to have had an encounter with God, but yet don't have a healthy fear of God? You see, you can't, you can't know God. You can't have experienced God. You can't have been in the presence of God and not fear God. Every time the Bible gives us an example of God's glory showing up, people are on their face before Him. They are worshiping Him in, in total adoration and in fear because you realize who He is. Now, how do we know if we fear God? What are some indications that we have a a healthy, proper fear of God? The fear of God should produce in you and me an overwhelming desire to have a right relationship with Jesus. You see, if you and I realize who He is, what He's capable of, what His majesty and power and glory look like, when we see that, we don't want anything in us to be wrong with our relationship with Him. In other words, in that moment, our struggles and the things that we're clinging to and our earthly possessions and all our little, you know, strange uh, habits and things that don't glorify God that we don't want to get rid of and that we've just been praying extensively about but never taken any action on, they go out the window instantly. You see, no one's standing before the glory of, the, of God and saying, you know, Lord... I know I should forgive, but they really hurt me. No one's standing in front of the glory of God and saying, Lord, now I know that there's some sin in my life that you've been dealing with me about, but listen, I need, to, I need you to explain some more about that. I'm not really sure about that. You see, no one is in the presence of God and using the comparison of themselves being a little better as a Christian than someone else as being good enough. When the glory of God comes into our lives, all we want to do is be right with Him. 
And what seems like such an expensive cost today in just another day in church suddenly just goes out the window. You see, this should make you and I realize that we are really petty. We're so petty and so flippant in the way that we respond to God. Because what we do is we will say something in, a, in, a, in, the, in the framework of a prayer request that's really gossip, or we will tear down a brother and sister in Christ and not give a moment's thought to the fact that Jesus Christ died to redeem them. And how dare us cast judgment and tear them down. You see, we negate the, the, the Scripture that tells us how to handle our grievances or our, 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 our hurts or our pains, and we just take matters into our own hands and we know they're wrong, but we're not too concerned about it because we feel justified. Well, that's just completely negating the fear of God. In other words, if we've experienced God, wouldn't we above all things just want to be right with Him? Wouldn't we? In other words, what would we, if we experienced God today in this place, what would we still hang on to as we left the building? Nothing. Nothing. Because the reality of who God is will just absolutely shatter. It will shatter our ability to cling to things that we know we ought not to in this life. But you see, as long as we don't experience God, we can justify ourselves in our own mind. You know, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 10 that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Isaiah 33, the prophet Isaiah, when, he, when God declares His power, he says this in Isaiah 33, 14, The sinners of Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? See, Isaiah is, is addressing the fear of God. Who, who, can, who can dwell with the consuming fire? Who's going to walk with their sin in hand into the presence of the One who shines like lightning? Who is going to take our, 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 all of our little things that we live our life for, all the, the time and energy and effort that we spend to sort of make ourselves comfortable and negate the needs of people around us? Who's going to drag all of those possessions up to, up to the foot of the cross and say, well, God, here's all my stuff that I've worked for? No one. No one is. That's who. Because He's a consuming fire. He's not this little bobblehead God that we stick on our dashboard and hope that He protects us as we travel. That's not who He is. He transforms the top of a mountain. Listen, when the glory of God shows up, and this is only a glimpse, this isn't the glory that we'll see at His second coming. You see, it's easy for us to say, well, when He comes again, when the sky splits open, and there's blood on his robe, and he's wielding the word of God, and he's coming down to heaven, to, from heaven to judge those who have stood in opposition to him. Man, we are cheering. But that's the same glory of the God we serve today. It's just fully revealed. It's as if we feel like we need to know more. Listen, the fear of God is a good thing. The Bible says in Psalm 19, the fear of God is clean. It endures forever. It's good. His judgments, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. They're to be desired more than gold. 
Psalm 34 says, Fear the Lord, you as saints. There is, for those who do, there is no want in them who fear God. You see, the promises about the fear of God is that they're good. And so when we encounter God, we're going to encounter His glory. We're going to encounter His purpose. We're going to be overwhelmed with fear at the revelation of His awesomeness. And we're going to encounter God at His Word. Because His Word is central to any encounter with God. is is central. Right in the middle of it is going to be His Word. Look at verse 35 and 36. And the voice comes out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son. Hear Him. When the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone. But they kept quiet and they told no one in those days the things that they had seen. The cloud engulfs Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. And then the same voice that spoke at the baptism of Christ. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. The voice of the Father comes out of the cloud and tells Peter, Shut up. This isn't about building a tabernacle. What you need to do is you need to listen to my Son. You need to listen to Him. Now, where are we with regards to this? Are we... Are we in a position this morning to really receive what's going on here? Because if you examine this closely, what you find is that we're, we've sort of went through a transition point in the, in the disciples' learning curve. We're now to a, a place where Jesus is now revealing to the disciples that He's going to die, that He's going to leave. And they don't want to hear that. See, because that's not the plan that they're, they're up for. That's not their idea. They don't think that's really a, a good thing. And so, so God says, listen, this is my son, and you need to listen to him. Why doesn't God say, I am the Lord your God, listen to me? Why doesn't he just say what he wants them to hear? Why does he say, listen to Jesus? I think John answers that question in in John chapter 1. He said, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. You see, because to listen to Jesus is to listen to His Word. It's the same command. It would be absolutely no different if God had said, listen to my Word. Because you're standing in the presence of my Word. This is the Word. It became flesh in Jesus. And so the command is to listen to the Word. And John says in John chapter 1 that the Word became flesh and it dwelt among us and we beheld His glory. You see, His words are true, His warnings are real, and His promises are unbreakable. You know, and Peter writes about this experience on the mountain in in 2 Peter chapter 1. And you can read that this afternoon and see how how Peter begins to to draw the centrality of of the Word of God. He he begins that whole part in 2 Peter 1.16 and says, We did not follow cunningly devised fables that we had made known to you, but it was the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. You see, what Peter's saying is, listen, we're not, we're not telling you some fable. This is the Word of God. We were eyewitnesses to His majesty. You need to listen to Him because we know that, because we heard that and we saw that. But Jesus is sending a message that the disciples don't want to hear. They don't want to hear about go and die on a cross and all that. They don't want that. They want Him to come and fix their problems and make them happy and, and, and make everything good. 
They really want them to just come and turn the world into a giant Disneyland. That's what they really want. Is that what we want? Is it? Maybe the problem that we have is that the Word of God says things that we don't really want to hear. We don't really want to be true. We don't really want to receive. Maybe sometimes the Word of God says things that aren't really what we think ought to be. We don't really believe that it's the best thing. You see, they're struggling. They love God. But they're struggling to understand, how can it be good if you leave? How is it better if you're gone than if you're here? And see, for you and me, in our everyday life and where we are today, maybe there's some people in here this morning and you're wondering the same thing. You're like, God, I'm not sure about this. And Jesus says, listen, I've got to go and die. Because that's what I came for. If I don't do that, you have no idea what the ramifications will be. You can't fathom the horror if I stay here with you. If I don't die for the sins of mankind. If I don't pay the penalty that only I can pay. That's the purpose of me being here. And so sometimes we need to examine our hearts and we need to ask ourselves, what is Jesus saying to you and me that we're resistant to hear this morning? What is the decision that He is calling you and me to? Have we really experienced the glory of God in a way that has left us transformed by the renewing of our mind? That we can trust Him when it doesn't make sense. That we can follow Him even though we don't sense His presence or feel Him. That in in moments when it just seems like this cannot possibly be the right thing to do. Are we willing to just walk forward for the Lord? You see, so many of you in here, as I look at your faces, I'm just reminded of, of times in your life where I've seen you Trust God when it seemed like every possible odd was stacked against you. That there was no way that it could possibly work out for good, and yet it did. I just want to challenge you this morning. That this all happened for a reason. That that this whole moment in time, this glimpse of God's glory is because... The Lord is trying to impress upon His disciples. Listen, what you need to know is that there are things about me you don't yet understand. But you need to hear me. You see, we tend to believe that worshiping God is about coming and seeking God. But real worship of God is much more about coming and responding to a God who's already spoken. We serve a God who's spoken. He's already said to us all that we need to know and hear. What is it that we're resisting this morning? So as we stand and bow our heads and close our eyes, would we be honest before the Lord? Would we say, God, I come before you this morning in in honesty and in openness, and and I realize that in light of who you are, in light of your glory, the things that I have been clinging to really are foolishness. And every hurt and every pain, every source of confusion and suffering that's in this room, 
And I know there's, there, are, there are impossible odds and, and, and it's seemingly insurmountable circumstances. But in light of a God who transfigures Himself into His glorious nature and who begins to glow like lightning, in light of that God, would we this morning just come in faith and say, Lord, I trust You. I trust you. I respond to you. There's no area of my life that's off limits. Whatever you want to change this morning, come and change. I invite you, Lord. I'm not going to hang on to it anymore. I want what you want for me, Lord. You've spoken. I want to hear you this morning. I want to hear. For some of you, that means receive Christ for the first time. Maybe in light of many people who think you're already saved, but just to say, I'm done pretending and playing God I come and I say Lord I want to encounter you I want to know you I want to be your son or your daughter for some of us in this room it's to come and plant our life here and to say I want to plant my life here and, and, and grow my family here and belong here and be held accountable here and, and learn to, to, to sharpen iron with other believers here For some, there's sin that needs to be confessed before the Lord. For some, there's a prayer life that consists of just little fleeting little jingles. There's some of you in this room. You cannot think of the last time you were totally undistracted and isolated alone with the Lord. Father, will you do in this time what only you can do as we respond unto you in Jesus' name. Amen.